Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, 19th century writer Stephen Crane was on a ship that sank 12 miles off of Daytona Beach, and he was guided to shore by what is now the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse. And he wrote a historical account of it, a journalistic account of it, but then he decided to turn it into fiction and wrote The Open Boat. We'll discuss the history of public health in Florida. During not infrequent outbreaks of contagious diseases, the battle to contain the disease was secondary to the battle to contain the news. And we'll talk about the endangered downtown Bonifay Historic District. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The fourth sea interlude from the Benjamin Britten opera Peter Grimes could also serve as accompaniment to the Stephen Crane short story, The Open Boat. Stephen Crane became a famous writer in 1895 when his novel about the American Civil War called The Red Badge of Courage was published. The following year, he agreed to work as a journalist covering the war in Cuba. Crane was on his way to Cuba aboard the SS Commodore when the ship sank 12 miles off of Daytona Beach. It was the beacon from what is now the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse that guided Crane to shore and resulted in his popular short story, The Open Boat. Mike Bennett is director of operations for the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. The War of Independence for the Cubans, uh, it uh, made national news and they had the Cuban Junta, which was essentially a, it was a, an organization that was formed by both Cuban refugees um, that had escaped Cuba and the Spanish government and come to the United States, and by sympathizers. Uh, if you think about this story of that the Cubans were living under, under Spanish rule, uh, it really struck a chord, of course, with Americans because it was very reminiscent of our own revolutionary story. Uh, and so there was a lot of support um, throughout the United States um, for the Cuban movement, uh, for the, the peasants essentially that were being uh, treated quite poorly, um, really no better than slaves in some cases, uh, by the Spanish government. And uh, these Cuban rebels, you know, they were fighting for their independence. Um, of course, this made great news, and so Stephen Crane was hired to essentially serve as a embedded reporter, um, sort of like we saw during the Gulf War. Uh, and he was a well-known writer at that point in time, uh, you know, of course, was a journalist himself and also had written The Red Badge of Courage. Um, and so he was hired to uh, essentially kind of document both the, 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 uh, the gun running 
and resupply missions that the Cuban Junta was putting together. And uh, in many cases, they used ships that were within Florida. Uh, one of those ships was the steamship, the Commodore, uh, which was a steam tug uh, that was based out of Jacksonville. And uh, Stephen Crane uh, reported on board uh, as a able seaman um, and, you know, took a job coming down and was really kind of reporting on the entire process of uh, not only raising funds, but also resupplying the, the Cuban rebels with arms, ammunition, medical supplies, general supplies, food stores, uh, new recruits for the fighting itself. Uh, and so they set sail from Jacksonville. And uh, in the process, the, the tugboat actually ran aground on a sandbar it was, as it was leaving Jacksonville. Uh, and probably that's where the damage occurred. But as the ship made its way to sea, they found that it was taking on water. Um, by the time it made the uh, essentially 90-mile journey from Jacksonville down to approximately where we're at now, uh, just off the coast of Daytona Beach, uh, the ship had taken on so much water uh, that it was sinking. There's a lot of scuttlebutt about uh, the Commodore and the fact that uh, it might have been sabotaged. John Mann is lead docent at the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. The Commodore was a gun runner. Uh, they were running guns, ammunition, medicine, supplies, food, and money to uh, the Cuban rebels in. Uh, this, of course, is prior to the uh, Spanish-American War, the years prior to that. This was called filibustering, and it was uh, pretty exciting. Uh, actually, the West was won. There wasn't much else going on that was exciting in the United States, and so this became a... Um, it's became a very exciting kind of a news story. Of course, back then, we don't have 24-7 cable news, uh, and so the premier communications device was the newspaper. Crane was, of course, a gifted, gifted novelist and short story writer, but his day job was a reporter. Well, add all those things together, and uh, Crane gets himself in trouble in New York, which is not unusual. Um, he testifies against a police captain in New York, and so he skedaddles with his newspaper's uh, ascent, obviously, down here, and goes to Jacksonville to uh, try to find himself a filibustering expedition that he can sign on. Young, capable, uh, able-bodied, so to speak. He eventually meets uh, uh, Edward Murphy, who's the captain of the Commodore. The Commodore is one of the three really good gun runners in the fleet, so to speak. And uh, Murphy realizes that this is not a bad thing to have some positive things written. He, everyone knows Crane. He's a He's a superstar because of the uh, red badge of courage. And uh, so he, he signs on uh, as an able-bodied seaman. But, uh, uh, of course, what he does is um, he's on to report on this. Commodore runs aground twice going out of Jacksonville. It is not sabotage. It is a drunken river pilot. She gets down to about 14 miles off the coast here, and she starts to take on serious water. Uh, they turn her to um, the uh, to the west and are going to run to the Ponce the Lighthouse or get as close as they possibly can. They get to about 11 miles when the water overcomes the engines and it is time to bail. Uh, that means bail out of the, out of the, uh, uh, the ship and into the uh, lifeboats. The last lifeboat is actually the captain's dinghy 
Uh, four men get in, the captain, Crane, the, the cook, and um, a, an oiler uh, from the ship, and they begin the 31-and-a-half-hour ordeal that is called, uh, in Crane's short story, The Open Boat. Mike Bennett. Of course, the seas were quite rough at that particular point in time, and uh, they spent the next day essentially trying to make it ashore. Uh, in this open boat, um, and it's quite a terrifying journey. Uh, and one of the things the captain said uh, while they were trying to make it to shore was to keep the eye on the beacon at Mosquito Winlet, which they could see on the horizon. And so that's what they rode toward was the beacon at the top of our lighthouse. And uh, eventually they, they did make it to shore, um, not without casualties, but Stephen Crane survived. And uh, he then wrote an article about his experience and then turned that article into a short story called The Open Boat, um, which has been um, essentially considered by many literary experts as one of the finest short stories written in the English language. Saki O'Sullivan is Professor Emeritus of Literature from Rollins College and an expert on Florida literature. His books include The Florida Reader, Visions of Paradise, and Have You Not Heard of Florida? The Origins of American Multiculturalism in Florida's Colonial Literature, 1513 to 1821. O'Sullivan says that in 1896, Stephen Crane testified at the trial of alleged prostitute Dora Clark. And he got into trouble and decided it might be good to make himself a bit scarce. So he hired on with William Randolph Hearst to go on what were known as the filibustering expeditions to Cuba, where Hearst and other media barons were trying to stir up trouble and trying to start a fight between the United States and Spain over Cuba. He went to Jacksonville. In Jacksonville, he met a woman named Cora Taylor, and they became very close. In fact, she became his common-law wife, and then he set off to Cuba on this filibustering expedition, which on a ship that was not very seaworthy, it sank. He spent 30 hours on a dinghy, finally coming back to shore off Daytona, saved by the lighthouse. And he wrote a historical account of it, a journalistic account of it. But then he decided to turn it into fiction and wrote The Open Boat. As a child, O'Sullivan was forced to read Stephen Crane's most popular book, The Red Badge of Courage, but he encountered the short story, The Open Boat, much later. It's a story that I didn't read until I started teaching Florida literature, and I was extraordinarily impressed at how good it was. He wrote it in 1896, and he actually would die a few years later, 1900, when he was only 28. The Open Boat, it's usually classified as naturalism. Stories about people who are affected only by natural processes, part of the period in which there is um, what has been called the disappearance of God from literature. People are affected only by social events, by nature itself. Usually they're fairly bleak and tragic. One of the things that Crane achieves, I think, is a breakthrough in that, and it actually becomes almost existentialist, in which the correspondent, who is the narrator of the story, at least it's told from his perspective, sees life as 
depending purely on what we do and how we work with others. It's a beautifully written story. It starts with one of the most famous sentences in literature, none of them knew the color of the sky. That sentence suggests how much ambiguity, how much uncertainty there is. And as the correspondent on this open boat, as he and other members of the crew are trying to get to shore and are constantly being rebuffed as the tides and currents pull them away from shore, realize that the only force that they can depend on is each other. The four people at sea in Stephen Crane's small rowboat work together to make it to shore. They are aided by the beacon from what in Crane's day was the Mosquito Inlet Lighthouse. Felipe de Paula is registrar and assistant curator at the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. So during the Cuban Revolution that later merged into the uh, Spanish-American War, um, but before the Spanish-American War, during the Cuban Revolution, there were lots of these filibusters to Cuba, which were these ships from uh, the United States that would bring supplies and guns and uh, medicine and everything. Um, and on one of these filibustering expeditions, um, there was a ship called the Commodore. Uh, there was a man named Stephen Crane, who was a well-respected uh, author and journalist who went down to uh, record the events of the war. But... Unfortunately, during the, the trip from Jacksonville down to Cuba, they did not make it. They hit a sandbar over by Jacksonville, and pretty soon thereafter, as they got close to the Daytona Mosquito Inlet region, the ship sank. And so Stephen Crane, the captain, as well as the two other crewmen, managed to survive in a little dinghy, and they paddled and paddled and um, stayed, I believe it was about 30 hours, but they, they sat on this dinghy for uh, well over a day until they finally managed to reach ground over here right by the lighthouse and uh, Stephen Crane immortalized this experience in his The Open Boat story which uh, he published first in newspapers immediately after resting and recuperating and then later published it as a separate story but it's very well written account of what a typical shipwreck experience would have been like back then because it, it, this was just the most famous example but there were many 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 shipwrecks that happened in the inlet and nearby and um, which is why there was such a need for lighthouses like our own right to prevent as many of these disasters as possible save as many lives as possible the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse is still an operational private aid to navigation and the tallest lighthouse in Florida the Lighthouse Museum complex was placed in the National Register of Historic Places in 1972 and was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1998. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Ridges Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we've been dealing with the COVID pandemic for nearly two years now. Let's talk about the history of public health in Florida. Many of the early visitors and tourists to Florida came during the winter months for health reasons. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, tuberculosis was a significant problem across the nation, and the warm, dry winter season in Florida provided an easily accessible respite for people living in the eastern half of the nation. But Florida was not simply a place to rest and recuperate. Its hot, muggy summers and falls were also a time of outbreaks of some of the most dreaded communicable diseases, yellow fever, smallpox, and encephalitis. The Florida Historical Quarterly has published several articles on public health, two dealing with the early decades of the 20th century and one focusing on an incident in 1962. Did these articles you're talking about have a central theme? Well, yes and no. The authors were writing about different diseases, but in all three cases, they tie disease and public health to larger developments in Florida history progressive reforms, the Florida land boom of the 1920s, and the role of advertising and newspapers in Florida's economy. How did progressive era reforms figure into public health? Christine Ardalan's very recent article details the rise of modern public health nursing in the progressive era by focusing on Florida-born Mary E. McDonnell Carter. Trained at the prestigious New York Bellevue Hospital, Mary spent her life in public health nursing in Cuba, the Philippines, and Florida. Graduates of Bellevue's nursing program worked and lived in the Henry Street Settlement House, where they provided social services and nursing for the immigrant populations of the Lower East Side of New York City. So early in her career, she was engaged in one of the foremost progressive institutions. When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1896, she joined the newly formed Army Nursing Corps and served in Cuba and the Philippines, where she worked to create sanitary hospital conditions for wounded and ill soldiers. During an outbreak of typhoid fever in Manila, she recognized the need for access to medical care for the city's residents, especially the poor, and organized a training school for nurses. In July 1918, she returned to Miami and assumed the role of supervisor for public health nursing. One area of particular concern for Carter was the high infant mortality among blacks as compared to whites. In bringing attention to this disparity and organizing black nurses to address the problem, she confronted one of the most racially charged issues of the day. By October of that year, Carter was dealing with the appearance of the outbreak of influenza in Miami, part of the pandemic that caused an estimated 50 million deaths globally and 675,000 deaths in the United States. The need for nurses was acute, and Carter worked tirelessly in an effort to meet that need. In the aftermath of the pandemic, She established a link with the Red Cross Nursing Service that would prove essential in the 1926 and 1928 hurricanes. Ardalan's article helps us understand the importance of public health nursing in providing infant and maternity care 
and addressing the role of public health efforts against communicable diseases. She also demonstrates the relationship between women in public health and other reform efforts of the progressive era. Connie, tell us about the other two articles. Eric Jarvis, a Canadian historian, has written two articles on public health issues for the quarterly. In the first article on the 1926 outbreak of smallpox, he focuses attention on the weaknesses of the state public health system, the public pressure to manage the news about the number of smallpox cases, and in fact, Florida had the largest number in the country that year, in order to prevent adverse effects on the land boom in South Florida. He also talks about the racism that supported public claims that the outbreak primarily affected black communities and therefore was of little concern for white visitors to the area. The findings in the smallpox article fit well with his work in the 1962 encephalitis epidemic in St. Petersburg and suggests that the state faced some of the same issues. For two months, the disease, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, raged through St. Petersburg and Pinellas County, with as many as 190 cases and 38 deaths. Efforts to contain the encephalitis epidemic were waged on two fronts. First was a war against mosquitoes, and second, a war to contain negative publicity about the outbreak. The war against mosquitoes began with cleanup campaigns and progressed to a misguided campaign to stop public feeding of birds who were thought to be carriers. That brought ridicule from Floridians and outsiders and angered members of the Audubon Society. Finally, the campaign moved to the spraying of pesticides. As Jarvis points out, the city sprayed 70,000 gallons of lethal pesticide and encouraged homeowners to engage in their own toxic spraying simultaneously with the release of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Fearful of the effect that such news would have on Florida's tourist economy, community and state leaders launched a second war to contain the news, which also operated against the distribution of good public health information and included public attacks on health officials. The research of public health that Ardalan and Jarvis presented in the three articles demonstrates the frequency of public health crises and the barriers to establishing strong public health institutions in Florida. During not infrequent outbreaks of contagious diseases, the battle to contain the disease was secondary to the battle to contain the news. Well, hopefully our own battle with the current pandemic will end soon. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this look at historic downtown Bonifay. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Downtown Bonifay Historic District is included on the 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about the history of Bonifay, the county seat and the largest city in Holmes County. 
it's actually pretty interesting for me personally because my great grandparents actually stayed in Bonifay uh, before moving down to Central Florida. So uh, downtown Bonifay is essentially a testament to the families that founded the community of Bonifay. These families are still part of the community today. And then everything about downtown's birth and growth shows a community of entrepreneurs, risk takers that were willing to really put in the hard work in a variety of trades to be successful and provide for their families. Bonifay was designated as the county seat in 1905 and was officially incorporated as a city in 1921. So just a little history on Bonifay itself. It is a community that is located about uh, 91 miles west of Tallahassee and 105 miles east of Pensacola. And that area is noted for agriculture and timber. Bonifay has a general population of about 2,700 people or so. And uh, it was founded in the late, well, early 1880s by W.D. Chipley, who was a railroad executive with the Pensacola and Atlantic Railroad, which later became the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which later became CSX, and then ultimately is now the Florida Gulf and Atlantic Railroad between Pensacola and the Jacksonville area. So it's named after Frank Bonifay, who was from a family that owned a brick-making factory in Pensacola. And um, the downtown district in and of itself is comprised of a collection of commercial and governmental buildings that has historically served as an economic, informational, and governmental center, Holmes County, and this general area of the Panhandle. Several of the governmental and commercial buildings in downtown Bonifay Historic District, such as the Holmes County Courthouse and the County Sheriff's Office, retain their historic integrity. Another significant structure in the downtown historic district is a building originally known as the Bonifay Hardware Store. One of the interesting buildings in downtown Bonifay is the Bonifay Hardware Building. It was built in 1940 and originally served as a hardware store, and then it became the site of the Carps Department Store from the 1960s to the early 1980s before becoming a Dollar General through the 1990s. It's currently vacant today. However, the building owner does have plans to rehab the site and bring it back to life as restaurant and retail space. So it is an example of the possibility of adaptive reuse and historic preservation in this downtown National Register Historic District. Inclusion on the Florida Trust's 11 to Save list brings awareness to the ongoing restoration and preservation efforts in the downtown Bonifay Historic District. Solutions such as adaptive reuse can allow historic buildings in Bonifay to continue to serve the community for generations to come. Ennis Davis. Many of the structures in the downtown district have withstood the test of time, including the 1920s decline of the lumber boom, as well as the introduction of the boll weevil, which caused considerable damage to the area's cotton harvest. And they even survived the emergence of the bootlegged industry during Prohibition. However, over the last few years, the downtown area has been no match for the destruction caused by a few hurricanes that occurred over the past decade. As a result, downtown Bonifay was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2020 in hopes of encouraging the preservation of the historic buildings uh, that do remain that have been damaged from Hurricanes Irma and Michael and other storms. So uh, with this in mind, the Florida Trust included downtown Bonifay on its 11 to save list in the efforts to raise awareness and to encourage support for additional resources for a range of historic and cultural preservation initiatives for this particular community. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to save list, go to floridatrust.org. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.